Great, good evening. It's good to see you all and be with you tonight. Um, yeah, so I'm launching our brand new series tonight called Faith in Action. Over the last four weeks, we've been looking at our vision as a church, to aim high, to always give God our best, to dig deep, to build a faith that lasts, to reach wide, to work together for the good of others and to fight against inequality and to go long, to invest in the future generations and the future of God's church. These are all things that are about being active in our faith and being engaged in God's mission and ministry to bring his kingdom in our city. And so that's what we're going to be looking at over the next seven weeks, how each one of us can have an active faith. And to do that, we're going to be looking at the life of the early church recorded in the book of Acts. If we want to know how to put our faith in action, we look to the early church, those people who had just received the truth about Jesus and who he is, those people who'd seen him, who'd been with him before and after his resurrection, and learn all we can from how they responded to that new incredible truth that they had received, that new faith that they had received. Dallas Willard, the theologian, said something that I absolutely love, and it's this. He said, you don't believe something when you say that you believe it. You don't believe something when you think that you believe it. You believe something when you act as if it were true. And so that's what we're going to be looking at, and we're going to look at the early church and how their belief turned to action, how, and how we can put our shared belief into action in this city and in this world. When I encountered Jesus for the first time, I was immediately compelled uh, by the Spirit to read the Gospel of Luke. And I love the Gospel of Luke. It blows my mind and it still does today because Luke shows us the, the person of Jesus in such an incredible and individual way. And he does it in this really radical, fast-paced way as he talks about Jesus' ministry. And it was not written as kind of complex literature like some of the other Bible. It was written for like the everyday person. And that's why I love it. And I don't know, you might not know, but Luke also wrote the book of Acts. And many people refer to the book of Acts as Luke's part two. And the reason I love Acts, and I find it so exciting, um, and the reason I think as well it's got so much to say to us as we look at what putting our faith into action looks like, is that there's this incredible thread that runs throughout the book of Acts. That we continually see what happened to Jesus, or what Jesus did in Luke, being done by or being done to the church in Acts. And when I say the church, I'm not talking about an institution or a building, but about the people of God. So what happens to Jesus in Luke happens to the church in Acts. What Jesus did in Luke, the church do in Acts. In fact, there are as many as 20 instances recorded between the two books where the exact same thing that happened to Jesus happens to the early church even including both Jesus and Paul being slapped in the face by the high priest. Now, unless the high priest was going around slapping people in the face every five minutes, which seems highly unlikely for a well-respected religious leader, um, we've got to take notes of these similarities that Luke is deliberately drawing out and the significance that they have. Luke is making it clear to us that the church are the ones who, filled with the Spirit, are to pick up and carry on Jesus' mission and vision for the world and carry that forward. We need to look no further than Luke's depiction of the, the church in Acts if we want to know how the rubber of relationship with Jesus hits the road of this world. 
And that's what we're looking at today, specifically looking today at that passage Sonia has just read from us from Acts 2, which gives us this insane snapshot of the early church and what it was like in the day-to-day. I think you could probably talk on that passage for about 10 weeks, Um, but tonight I'm going to try and draw out two of what I think are the main points of it. Um, And the first thing I think that passage is saying to us this evening is that our faith becomes active when we are extravagant in giving. In verse 44 to 45, we hear all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Further to this, the meals at home, the meals in homes that are talked about in verse 46 are not talking about your kind of average meal with your mates, but something deeply subversive. Scholars basically think that this is talking about the first organized care for the poor that had existed in the world ever. Um, Basically, there was nothing like that in the Greco-Roman world. And the marginalized and existed were not looked after until the early church started doing it based on the teaching of Jesus. It's a deeply profound statement of God's heart for the poor, and it is totally alien to the world that it's happening in. So we see the early church answering the call to be extravagant in their giving right off the bat. And I want to just quantify before I get going, like I think so often when we hear about giving, we quickly clutch our wallet, panicking that the church is after our money. Um, and I just want to make it clear from the offset, I'm not actually talking about money primarily tonight when I talk about being extravagant in giving. I'm actually talking about our entire lives. <laughs> um, and obviously money and possessions come into that in a way, but mostly I'm talking about our time, our family, our our resources, our friends, the way our status, kind of God is calling us as disciples to be extravagant in giving everything we have. That being said, one of the biggest challenges I've ever faced in relation to giving relates to my chief love, barbecuing. (laughs) Now, when I wrote this and included this in my talk as an example, I wasn't aware that at the start of the service we were going to be told to reduce our meat consumption. So we're going to move forward on the assumption that when I talk about barbecuing, it's maybe something you might do every two weeks to a month as like a very rare treat in the summer. Um, but I love barbecuing. If you've chatted to me for any length of time, I'm sure at some point I would have included barbecuing in the conversation. I especially love to smoke things in my barbecue. And I've basically tried to smoke anything you could possibly think of in there. Onion bargies, pizzas, joints of pork, ribs, like all of it. I've tried to smoke it in my barbecue. Um, But my absolute favourite, the one I get like crazily passionate about and spend way too long talking about, and Hannah will roll her eyes even at the mention of it, is like a proper southern smoked barbecue brisket. That is like a labour of love that is like the pinnacle of food in my mind. Um, And just before I went off to Vicar Factory, uh, I'd agreed to do this for the last night of the last Alpha that we were doing in our old church before I I was leaving. And I said I'd do this, and it's like this proper labor of love, you know, such a a gracious gift that I was willing to give to them. Um, And first, you've got to make the rub, so you like get the smoked paprika, the garlic, the cracked black pepper, the brown sugar, the cumin, like all of that good stuff made together in the perfect quantities, and you massage that into the beef. And then you leave it for like 
48 hours preferably. Then, on the morning you're kicking off, you've got to get it out, let it come up to temperature nice and slowly, and then you start smoking it. And basically, you've got to tend it every 20 minutes for 10 hours adding coals to keep a nice constant temperature, shaving little slices of applewood and soaking them and then adding them to the coals so they let off that lovely fragrant smoke every 20 minutes for 10 hours. Like I say, it's a labor of love. But when you bite into that beef, oh, it's all worth it. It could take a week and it'd still be worth it. So <laughs> anyway, on this particular occasion, I had been doing this all day. I was nine hours in and one of my friends rang me and was like, mate, I'm having a crisis. I'd love to see you. I was like, can we do this tomorrow? He was like, clearly not all right. And so I agreed that I would leave from Western Supermare, which is where I was, ride home back to Devon to see my friend um, and chat to him as he was in a bit of a crisis. So I was riding home all the way, worried to death about leaving my barbecue in the hands of some absolute amateur from the Alpha team. And because my motorbike helmet had like sealed in all the flavor that I'd been soaking into my face from like sniffing it all day and stuff, it was like cased in my helmet. And all the way back, all I could smell was this barbecue brisket that I'd had to leave behind an hour before it was ready. And the conversation in my head went a bit like this. Why on earth did you spend all day smoking something that you don't even get to eat? Oh, but Josh, you love Alpha. The Alpha guests will love it. You love Alpha. It's great that people get to hear about Jesus. But what if they hurt or upset my barbecue? No, no, it'll be fine. Like, even your barbecue is a worthwhile sacrifice for what Jesus is doing at Alpha. But, like, what if when I get back to Weston tomorrow, there's not any beef left? No, no, it's okay. Like, radical hospitality is what you're called to as a disciple. But what if there's a vegetarian there who doesn't even appreciate it? No, no, Josh, God loves everyone, including vegetarians, and you should too. And basically, it went back and forth like this the whole way home. Um, and as you can see from this kind of ridiculous example and insight into my head, um, the call to be extravagant in giving is so countercultural to our worldly mindset, so different from the self-accumulation that we're constantly told to go after, um, that we, it really requires constant thought as a disciple about how we give selflessly now we're followers of Jesus. The behavior we see from the early church in relation to extravagant giving is reinforced throughout the book. Acts 4 reiterates, all the believers were of one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions were their own, but they shared everything they had. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Furthermore, in Acts 6, we hear that... Um, the neglect of widows within this habit of daily meal sharing, daily providing food for those who couldn't afford it themselves, is such an extreme issue that it causes huge rift in the community. And it's the first recorded disagreement in the church is about neglecting the poor. Um, and then we see, in the aftermath of that, God anointing by his spirit new leaders who don't do that to carry the gospel forward. Their faith was active and powerful and beautifully expressed in their radical and extravagant giving of time and honor towards those in need. Because those who are loved much, love much. Those who had received much, gave much. And they were identified by that as a community and it was so attractive. It's so countercultural to behave like that, to not be motivated by money or to give things away or to eat with people that other people wouldn't even look in the eye. 
The world can't ignore that. They have to know why people are behaving like that. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I think there's an important distinction to make, though, when we read these bold and challenging passages. I am not the most organized person in the world when it comes to dates. And a couple of Father's Days ago, I'd completely forgotten to get my dad a gift. Then I'd written him a card, but I hadn't posted it in time, so it hadn't arrived on the day. And then I was feeling particularly bad about all of this because the day before I'd forgotten my sister's birthday and then accidentally sent her card to her old address in the wrong city. Um, so then on the, on the Sunday of Father's Day, I was pretty busy at church, and when I eventually got to calling my dad at half past nine in the evening, I was feeling pretty appalling about this, um, and I feel like I owed him so much more than I'd managed. And I launched into this huge apology about it when he answered the phone, and he stopped me like mid-sentence, and he said, Josh, I don't care about any of that. Father's Day is just some day made up by card companies. All I want is to talk to you. Um, and we just chatted, and it was great to stop all that busyness um, and just to catch up. And I think so often we can think, just like I thought I owed my dad a card or a case of beer or something because he raised me, um, that God has been so good to us that we owe him something, like we owe him service, and we need to give this stuff back to him and to serve him. It's some sort of requirement. And I think it's so easy to slide into that. But it's about intimacy, not servitude. We're extravagant in our giving as a response to God, not as a requirement from God. To the God who Revelation says wants to come in and eat with you, to know you, to have a relationship with you. We give to God because it's God who gives to us. And we see that in his heart and we, we mirror it because we want to know him more closely. So that's my first point today, that our faith becomes active when we are extravagant in giving which is subversive to the broken way of this world and can't not point to Jesus. And we do that not out of compulsion, but in loving response to and relationship with the God who gave it all for us and to us. What might God be calling you to lay down at his feet in this season? The second thing I want to draw out of this passage today is that our faith remains active when we remain focused on grace. Grace is a very weird Christian word. To some of you, you might be thinking about the prayer you say before you eat. Um, but when I say grace, I'm talking about uh, the undeserved gift of relationship with God, the freedom, the fulfillment, the joy that comes from knowing God, knowing that you are a loved child of God, and that that's God's gift to you without price because of his love for you. That is grace. Grace is fundamental to what we believe. I think all of the songs that we sang tonight talked about grace. It is fundamental to what we believe as Christians. It's because of the grace of God that Jesus, God in human form, lived amongst his creation, suffered and died on a cross and was raised to life again, unholdable by death so that the mess of this world separates us no longer. Like the early church were focused on that grace. We see this in verse 42. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's the message of how Jesus lived, died, and rose again, the gospel. That is the teaching they're talking about. And they devoted themselves to it. And to the breaking of bread. And in the context of this verse, it's not talking about that shared meal that I was talking about, but it's actually talking here about taking bread and wine, and as Jesus had told them, remembering what he had done for them on the cross. 
So they devoted themselves to the teaching of the gospel and to remembering Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. The early church were focused on the grace they received at the cross and everything else flowed from that. When Hannah and I were still dating a few years ago, we were having a conversation about the persecuted church. And I ended up telling Hannah a story from before we'd met that I'd never told her before. I absolutely love to travel, and a few years ago I was spending some time in Vietnam with some of my friends. We'd been away for a really long time, all the guys that I was with didn't know Jesus, and so although I'd been doing alright with my kind of personal discipleship while I was there, I was longing to worship with other people. But I was a bit confused because the Vietnamese border had been an extremely tense situation where they'd searched us and taken away my Bible before allowing us to go into the country. However, there were churches everywhere, like everywhere you went, you saw a church, and a lot of Christian organizations state that Vietnam has one of the fastest growing Christian churches. So I was pretty confused, and I thought I would go to one. I went to this church during one of their service times, and to be honest, it felt a bit off. Um, There was no kind of feeling of joy or freedom in the place, and I was using a translator app on my phone to try and work out what was being said. And what I got translated was a prayer for the Communist Party of Vietnam, their leaders and their members. For those of you who don't know, Vietnam is run by a communist dictatorship. And so I eventually left, kind of horrified that the church was being used as another propaganda tool to hold up an oppressive regime. That afternoon I spent some time praying about it because it had actually quite upset me. Um, And I prayed, God, if you're doing something in this country, like, let me see it. And uh, as I prayed, one of the staff from the hostel that I was staying in came into the room, um, and when he saw me, I was alone in there, and when he saw me praying, he backed out of the room and then came back in and told me in broken English to go for a walk on Tuesday. I assumed that that was when he was planning on cleaning the room um, and forgot all about it. However, on Tuesday, I found myself alone at breakfast because both of the friends that I was with at the time were sleeping off a hangover, and so I thought I would go for a wander through the town that we're staying in. I'd been walking down this road for a little while, and I felt the overwhelming sense to turn left. And I honestly can't explain what made me feel that way or to do it, but I followed. This happened again a few more times until I eventually reached a cafe door, and I felt that I should go in. What I saw as I walked in was an older man uh, sweeping the floor ready to open up for the day. And he looked at me and he motioned silently with his his hand and with his head for me to go through a door into like one of these half-height little storage areas that they have in Vietnam, like a basement, basically. And I have no idea what made me do this. And I'm really not saying that this is a safe way to conduct yourself when you're in a dangerous country. Um, And definitely don't tell my mum. But I, uh, I went in. And what I found in there were seven disciples of Jesus crouched around a man praying for him in hushed Vietnamese. How do I know they're disciples when I don't speak Vietnamese? I can't explain. I just knew. And I joined them. And they didn't even bat an eyelid that I was there. It was like they'd been expecting me to come. And in time, they motioned to my knee, which was all bandaged up from a motorbike accident that I'd had. And they gathered around me and began to pray for me. And after a while, they passed a bowl of um, pho around and all partaked in it as, I assume, some sort of communion meal. Finally, they got a scrap of cloth out that had some writing on it as if it was the most treasured possession they'd ever had. And all closed their eyes as one of them read it aloud. 
At the end, they sat in silence for a few moments, and then one by one dispersed back through the cafe onto the street. One motioned that it was my time to go, um, and so I got up and I walked back out onto the street and back to my hostel. When I told this story to Hannah, she said, what? <laughs> she was like, we've been dating for nearly two years, and you've never told me this. Like, this is the most insane story. Um, and so then I told a few other people about it in the next few days, and they all reacted very similarly. And this really started me wondering, because it really is a miraculous story of God's power and the guidance of the Holy Spirit and the power of the church. Like, why did I not find it so amazing that I hadn't told everyone I know? And the more I thought about it, the more I realized that it was because of grace. When this incident occurred, I had not known Jesus for very long. I was still so astounded by the grace of God that it just didn't really register as out of the ordinary. I was still so mind-blown, so astounded by the simple fact that Jesus had died for me. The most extraordinary thing in the world to me was that Jesus, God in human form, would hang on a tree for me, some stupid little boy who only cared about himself because he loved me. Grace astounded me. And so it seemed only natural that the Spirit of God was powerful enough to lead me to other disciples. And it seemed only natural to me that they would risk their lives to faithfully worship him. And it seemed only natural that the astounding news of grace would unite us to praise him together, even though we spoke different languages and our lives were so different. And this event, amazing as it was, came in second to the incredible truth of the gospel that was still blowing my mind every single day. Grace astounded me. And it still does, but this whole situation really, really challenged me. Because does it still astound me now as much as it did then? I'm not sure, and I really should be. Because grace will always be just as astounding now as it was then. The sensational news of what Jesus has done will always be just as incredible now as it was then. But sometimes I think we forget the sheer life-altering raw truth of it all. I was discipled under a maxim from an old hymn that said, tell me often, for I forget too soon. So much of this world that we live in is trying to normalize grace to us because then we get complacent in our faith. The world says, yeah, it's pretty cool Jesus died for you, but being comfortable is quite nice too. Or yeah, it's pretty cool that Jesus died for you, but you've got a family now and they're your primary calling now. Yeah, it's pretty cool that Jesus died for you, but money's pretty great too, and you should be working hard for that. When we lose our focus on grace, our faith slips and becomes inactive. The activity that we're called to be a part of as a disciple becomes some sort of task, an inconvenience, a legalistic thing that we feel we have to do, a distraction from what we really want to do. But when we're focused on grace... When we focus on the grace of Jesus, it's the privilege of a lifetime to serve the one who saved us, no matter what the cost is. Our faith becomes active in a beautiful and transformational way that through the Spirit is world-changing. So how does our faith remain active when we are extravagant in giving and when we remain focused on grace?
the band are going to come and lead us in worship in just a second. And uh, as they come up, I'm going to pray for us. We're going to invite the Spirit to come and to minister to us as we, as we kind of sit in the truth of God's good news. Father God, we thank you so much for your incredible gospel. We thank you for the breathtaking news that no matter what, there's never been a second that you haven't loved us extravagantly. We thank you so much for that life-altering news. And we pray that as we go forward now, we would all have our eyes and our hearts fixed on your grace. That we would be focused on you in everything that we do. And everything that we do would flow out of that incredible truth.